The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35 says this. As but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this... I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word with many others also. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather together um, in this place and to hear your word proclaimed over us. And pray, Father, that you would come and speak to us, that you would give us your spirit and give us discernment, give us ears that would hear, give us eyes that would be open to see the magnificence and the glory of the gospel and that you would give us strength today as we study this text and not just strength, but even just practical ways by which we can fight to keep the gospel pure. I trust you to do this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. So hey, over the last few sermons, I've been uh, kind of arguing from a perspective that uh, the book of Acts, uh, you could kind of envision the book of Acts um, as though God is like a wartime general, Right? He's like a wartime general who will literally stop at nothing to advance his kingdom here on earth. And he does it primarily through the preaching of the gospel. That's the fully loaded weapon that we talked about uh, last week. The gospel. You've been tracking over the last few weeks, and you, you might agree too, that there's been some pretty heavy opposition to God's activity. There's been heavy opposition around every corner. Our enemy, the devil, uh, he's absolutely relentless in trying to demolish what God is building. If you just even go back to the beginning of Acts and you just kind of take a cursory flyby over the book of Acts from the beginning until now, um, you'd find that if the accusations um, of drunkenness among the apostles, if that wasn't enough on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, then you would tend to think that maybe some threats from from some really high-ruling, very powerful religious leaders, maybe maybe that would be enough to stop all of this nonsense in its tracks, right? Chapter 4, we see that taking place. But the reality is, even as you look at that opposition from those highly influential, powerful religious leaders... um, Even though you see that, you you find out that that opposition in chapter 4, that that doesn't stop the Spirit of God from advancing the gospel. In fact, you could say that it appears that with every strategic attack from the enemy, what happens is that God's people actually get more emboldened by the Holy Spirit, right? And they seem to kind of like rise up and they, they advance the kingdom even further under the strength and guidance and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's absolutely crazy as you read it, right? Like the next thing you see take place after those high-ranking religious leaders kind of oppose the apostles is you got this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, upstanding members of the early church. They get caught lying about their tithes and their offerings. And what happens? God strikes them dead. Thank God he doesn't do that to us today, right? Strikes them dead. Chapter 5, and I think there's a video that says, <laughs> says uh, contribution skyrocket. There's a video that says something to that effect. It's pretty funny, right? <laughs> but the reality is the end of that text says that once that happened, the church began to grow, which is amazing because I'm thinking, man, God's killing people. Do I want to go there? For some reason, there's something about the miraculous power of God as he moves through church families and brings judgment, so to speak, and discipline that does actually bring a level of health and in a miraculous sort of the way, attracts people to come and follow him. So you see that happen, right? But I mean, if that wasn't going to ruin the church, uh, maybe then the high priest can jump back in. So he does, right? High priest jumps back in. He arrests the apostles because of his jealousy, the text says. I think that's in chapter 5 as well. So he arrests them, toss them in jail because he's jealous of the attention they're getting. And what happens? 
Well, you would think that maybe they get beheaded or crucified or hung or, I don't know, some, you know, beaten to death, something. Uh, not in this instance. In this instance, an angel actually shows up and sets the apostles free, instructs them to continue preaching the gospel in the town square, which they go and do, which I just think is fascinating. It's gutsy. And then later on in chapter 5, the apostles actually get dragged in front of the tribunal. They, they get the snot kicked out of them. They get beaten for disobeying the high priest. And I would say he's got this council of really cowardly hypocrites. Like they look really religious. They look like believers, but they're not. They wind up beating the apostles, kick them out of the council, tell them to shut their mouths. The apostles, the text says they leave there and they're filled with joy. And they continue preaching the gospel. Their first Facebook post is not, oh, woe is me, I got oppressed. Their first Facebook message is, have you ever heard about Jesus? What just happened to me is nowhere close to what just happened to him. They got joy. There's a mark of true Christianity in what's taking place among these believers. Getting beaten, getting arrested, if that wasn't enough, right? Enemy kind of stirs up some more stuff, division. You know, division among families and churches and marriages. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty heavy thing, right? Still very much alive today in terms of division. And this is what Satan stirs up next in chapter 6. Division threatens to tear the church apart. Why? Because the widows are being mistreated. They're not just being neglected. The text actually would lead us to think that they're actually being mistreated. And so what happens? God provides wisdom, and he provides leadership to resolve the conflict. And so Satan's thinking, I'm guessing, um, sitting on his little throne of lies, he's thinking, what can I do next? So you get the story of Stephen, right? Stephen becomes the first martyr at the hands of a bloodthirsty terrorist. This is a pretty big moment in the history of the church. We remember the story, right? And you would think that might shut things down. God actually chooses to radically save that terrorist, commission him into ministry, makes him an evangelist, makes him a church planter, makes him a pastor among the most unreached people in the area. And the reality is for the rest of the book of Acts, it's the crazy, uptight, callers, religious folk that don't know Jesus, as we'll come to find out more and more. We're going to see some of them today. Um, they're the ones that just outright oppose what God is doing, right? God raises up the Apostle Paul in this to reach the most unreached people in the areas. That's chapters 7 through 9. And then just think about preconceived prejudices, right? Don't we all have some preconceived prejudices? prejudices? I can't even say the word. I'm starting to mumble. Um, we all have some of those. In this case, in the text, in regards to Cornelius, it has to do with ethnicity. Um, and yet prejudices, <laughs> it, that, can, that can affect us all the way from skin color to, to ethnicity, right, to social economic background, to um, certain secondary issues about how certain things are done. I mean, there's all sorts of secondary issues that we wind up using as a way to put blocks up between me and you and that I'm not going to be in a relationship with you because, right? So I think there were some challenges during those sermons about, hey, look around the room. Who would you not only spend time with? Go spend time with them, right? When those prejudices nearly stop short the advancement of the gospel among the Gentiles, God does a miraculous thing, absolutely transforms Peter's heart towards Cornelius, and that Gentile ministry begins. And if that wasn't enough in terms of opposition, what happens next is James gets murdered. Um, James is a big deal. James gets murdered. Peter gets arrested. It's a bloodthirsty king named King Herod, right? You might start thinking maybe it's over now. But no, it's not. We know the story. God sets Peter free, kills Herod with a bad case of intestinal worms. A pretty nasty day. Paul and Barnabas then get sent off on their first missionary journey, and what happens there? More opposition, right? This magician comes up and like starts babbling about something, tries to oppose them. Result of that, winds up walking around blind. That's that gift that none of us should ever have. I don't like you, you're opposing God blind. Right? It's not a good, that's why that gift is only mentioned one time that I know of in the scriptures. 
got the local religious folks get jealous of Paul and Barnabas in chapter 13 uh, over in a little town called Pisidia. They wind up driving the apostles out of town. But even as they drive them out of town, a whole bunch of Gentiles hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. So it's, it's, it's not an L, it's a W, right? By the way, anybody notice the Huskers won yesterday? That's, hey, we're getting somewhere, right? Yeah. I don't think it's Holy Spirit empowered, but <coughs> you move forward from that story of getting drug out of town, Gentile believers hearing the gospel, believing in Jesus in chapter 13, you move forward to chapter 14, some local religious leaders once again in Iconium, they, they decide they're going to lay a trap to stone Paul and Barnabas, and the apostles hear about it, and they, they sneak out of town, but they sneak out of town after making a whole bunch of disciples, and they head out to preach in other nearby towns. Furthermore, towards the end of chapter 14, Paul's enemies finally catch up with him. Probably cannot run him forever. Got to stop and get gas eventually. Paul's enemies finally catch up with him in Lystra, or Lystra. I don't know how you say it. They catch up with him. They stone him with big rocks. They think he's dead, so you got to imagine what he must look like, right? He must look like he's dead. They drag him out of town. They leave him laying in the dirt. But the reality is these enemies severely underestimated the power of the Spirit and the Apostle Paul, right? Because what does Paul do? He jumps right back up and, and goes right back to preaching in the streets of the very cities where he had previously been opposed. That's nuts. If somebody throws big rocks at me and I look like I'm dead on the side of the road, I probably do not want to go back to the cities where that happened. I probably... I'm going to go take a nap <laughs> in a hospital for a while. Paul gets up and goes back to preaching. He doesn't avoid those towns. Once again, the whole overriding theme here is that when God decides to advance his kingdom here on earth through the preaching of the gospel, we should expect that there will be much opposition from the enemy. But rest assured, the higher the opposition from the enemy the more that God will double down on his promises to be with his people to the end of the age as we labor under the power of the Holy Spirit to make disciples to the ends of the earth. Because that's the main calling for us. So as you dive into the text today, as we kind of take a walk back through it, it's easy to see that God is definitely not done advancing his kingdom. Which also means that the enemy is not done opposing God. Right? So the first thing you see, if you want to take notes, since it's not going to be on the screen, the <laughs> first thing we see is that a conflict erupts over the message of salvation. That's the first thing we notice. There's a conflict erupting over the message of salvation. You look at verses 1 through 5, you got some believers from out of town, they show up, they begin preaching that the salvation can only happen if someone is circumcised, which is a crazy idea, especially when you're talking about adults, right? It can only happen if someone is circumcised. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, they, they strongly resist the urge to allow anything to be added to the process of salvation. This debate between Paul and Barnabas and the circumcision party, it, it reaches some really intense levels as you read the text and you think through the language used there. I'm, I'm pretty sure there was some yelling. There was probably some shouting. There's probably some words that were said that they probably regretted. They're human. But the argument reaches an impasse. And so they take the argument before the council in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas wind up sharing everything that God's been doing through their ministry, which then causes this circumcision party to basically jump in with their perceived technicality. It's like throwing the flag. Nope, technicality. Right? Foul flag. And their perceived technicality, according to verse 5, is that it is necessary to circumcise them, speaking of the, these new Gentile believers, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And what these Pharisees are doing, literally, is attempting to add something to the message of salvation. 
they're saying that someone can only be truly saved if they add some kind of works to their profession of faith. Paul and Barnabas, of course, are doing everything they can to help the church resist the urge to add anything to the process of salvation outside of a profession of faith in Christ, crucified, risen, returning. And I'm certain, as I study this and think about it, I'm certain that this circumcision party, as they came before the council in Jerusalem, I am certain that they believed that the council in Jerusalem, being fully made up of Jewish believers, I think the circumcision party believed that this council would side with them. And that this council would put Paul and Barnabas in their place. That this council would probably rebuke them for being so radical with their ministry. Things don't go the way that this circumcision party expects them to go, right? Peter and James weigh in on the conflict. Peter and James are definitely heavyweights. The second thing we notice, uh, if you're taking notes in the text, verses 6 through 21... Peter and James weigh in on the conflict. In these verses, uh, verses 6 to 21, after hearing the core of the conflict between Paul and Barnabas and the circumcision party, Peter and James weigh in on what? What do they weigh in on? Well, what's the summary of what they actually say, right? Because a lot of words are spoken. Sometimes I'll meet with somebody throughout the week, and sometimes Christy will ask me when I get home, hey, how'd that go? I'll say, well, I said some words. I'm not sure if I should have said any of the words that I said, but I said some words. This is obviously what I'm good at doing is saying words. doesn't mean that I say good words. <laughs> Dumb illustration to say a lot of words are said here. What's the summary? What was really said? I think it's Peter and James weigh in on this. They're, they're weighing in about the centrality of relying on the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Now, if you've been a believer for longer than five minutes, less than five minutes, maybe not so much, but more than, I'm kidding. If you've been a believer for any amount of time, trust me when I say this, and you might find this to be intrinsically true anyways, something happens about in our Christian walk that, and it's hard to even always wrap our minds or our hands around it. But something happens whereby we move from this idea of relying on the grace of God alone to relying on something else. We rely on the books on our shelves. We rely on the pastor who's preaching. We, I mean, we rely on all sorts of good things, but we elevate those good things above the grace of God. Oftentimes it's our own works. So I think Peter and James, what they weigh in on, as I, as I walk through this, keep this thought in your mind, they're going to weigh in on the centrality, the importance of the centrality of relying on the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Peter gets up first, right, verses 6 through 11, and he basically reminds everyone that this Gentile ministry actually began with him over there at Cornelius' household, right? And God, God did not play favorites, but instead, God saved the Gentiles. Why? Because of their faith in Christ. Therefore, for Peter, it seems absolutely ridiculous to him that anyone would want to test God. That's the way he puts it, by laying this heavy weight of the law on these new Gentile believers. Because everyone from past generations until now knows full well that the Mosaic law, it can't be performed in perfection. The idea of trying to perform the Mosaic law, even going back to the text from Galatians that Abe had us read during our, our liturgy today, it always brings an image for me of the Italian mob movies I love to watch, which I know makes me somewhat sinful. But if, anyways. It reminds me of the bricks, you know, that they put on people's feet. You know, throw them in the water. Hey, get out of here. You get done, you know. It's a heavy weight. There's, there's no way. You're done, <laughs> you know. 
unless you're Houdini. And this is what Peter reminds them of. This is a heavy weight. Nobody's been able to perform this in perfection. Why would we want to put those weights on the feet of these new believers? If you know what it's like that moment when you came to faith in Christ. And I, I know that we have two different basic narratives rolling around in our church. Right? This is true anywhere. You have the narrative of somebody who was like saved from birth. Okay? It's like, well, I don't really remember a day that I didn't believe. And I don't really have this radical salvation story. I, just, I grew up in a Christian family. And then you, then you have this other story where it's like, no, there was, I ran like rebellious from God and God knocked me down in the middle of the street and I got saved, right? So I recognize that even as we talk about God's grace um, and as we talk about the law and this heavy weight, I recognize that it's more difficult for some of us to go back and point to a day when we go, man, on that day, all of the weight of my sin was lifted, and I felt free. And then immediately after that, somebody began to place weights on top of me. You understand what I'm saying now? So I understand that maybe that can categorically be difficult for some of us in the room to grasp. And my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would do a work there in that that we would grasp what it's like that moment to have our sin fully shown to us. Big projector, white screen in front of you, in your mind. Every sin. Without the ability to compare to somebody else, or to justify, or to diminish, or to downplay. Look at that. And then to say, that cross was bloody. And there was a man on that cross who shed that blood. There was a man on that cross whose body was broken. And it doesn't matter if I got saved in the middle of the street or if I came out of the wound talking about Jesus. It doesn't matter. That same Jesus died for me because of the weight of my sin. Because sin is filthy and it's disgusting and it's gross. And it's horrifying. And it's horrible. And I believe in that Jesus. Maybe for some of us, we believe in that Jesus because he found you in the middle of the street in a crumpled up heap or in a jail cell. Or maybe for some of you, you get the blessed story of saying, I never experienced those things. I praise God for you. Because you don't walk around with the scars that some of us do. That's God's faithfulness to you. That's God's grace to you in a different way than it is to somebody else. Experience that freedom just for a moment and then think about the Italian mob boss walking in with the law, right? A whole bunch of bricks and his henchmen, and they just tie you up with it and throw you overboard. It's impossible. In light of all that, Peter proclaims, verse 11, he says, we believe, we believe that we will be saved through what? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So I love this about Peter, right? I mean, Peter is a Jewish believer. Peter is a man who was born into a believing household. Peter is a man who's somewhat educated at least when in comparison to today's standards. Back then, no, not very educated. Peter grew up in this religious home. And he says, hey, you know what? Those Gentiles who are the outsiders, I think we're saved in the same way they are through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is literally arguing to keep the gospel pure by relying on the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And what Peter said must have landed like an absolute bombshell in the midst of that assembly, right? Because Luke, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, Luke says in verse 12, you might look at it, verse 12 he says that everyone fell silent. I remember when I first started preaching. Now, to be honest, the first sermon I preached, I preached for almost two hours. And the people in the congregation were very, very gracious. 
There was no clock in the room to keep track of, and I had no idea. My pastor was mad. Okay? But I do remember in those earlier years of preaching, when a congregation would get totally silent, I remember up here in the lights, and you see the looks on faces, like I can see everybody, right? You just get to see me. It would freak me out. In this case, everyone falls silent. Why? Well, he says, everyone fell silent, verse 12, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And once they're done talking, once a bunch of words are spoken, James, half-brother Jesus, who's also known to be one of the most pious Jews of his time, right? Very, very well-respected man in the religious community. He stood to speak, verses 13 to 21. Now again, I, I can't imagine what the setting would have been like, what the scene would have been like. Got the circumcision party, right? I'm thinking the circumcision party is thinking that maybe James is going to be the one. James is the heavy hitter, okay? James is going to be the one to bring this entire debacle back into reality. Really, James represents the Jewish believer's interests the most as a devout Jew. Well, let's not forget that he's a, he's a believing Jew. He's a Jew who believes in Jesus. Not that at this point the circumcision party doesn't. I think there are many in that party who have trusted in Jesus and have been set free. We will see, continuing through the story, that many within that party are going to become the enemies of the church, for sure. But I think there are many who were legitimately and genuinely saved and still trying to figure out, I grew up under this law system and there was still grace in that. I'm trusting in Jesus now. What does that mean for all these traditions of ethical and moral holiness? How do I now walk that out in a way that still lifts high the grace of God, right? So I think they're looking at James and they're thinking, man, this guy's going to do it, okay? He's, he's our best spokesperson. In reality, James begins, verses 14 through 18, he, he substantiates the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. He does it by showing that the, the prophets of old actually agree with what they're now witnessing. He basically says, hey, hey, listen guys, God has always been about the salvation of both Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, James' judgment is this, that Peter is right. Paul and Barnabas are in fact preaching a faithful message of salvation. And the Gentiles are actually genuinely being saved. And this means that circumcision of adults, which blows my mind anyways, because you ain't touching me, is all I want to say. All right? We got guns for people who do that. And that's torture in some countries. Okay. No, we're not doing that. Basically says that circumcision and a requirement to obey the law of Moses is this is uncalled for. Look at verses 19 to 21. He says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. I'm going to pause for a moment here and just say this. What, what James is doing here is he's simply outlining some ethical expectations of believers. He's, he begins with the assumption that these Gentile believers are actually believers. Then he says, you're believers because you trust in Jesus based on the grace of God. Therefore, here's some things you should do. Here's some basic ethical ways you should live. And, and he basically points to idolatry, sexual immorality, and then everything after that, he, you know, he talks about you know, abstaining from blood. This is eating meat. This is dietary laws in the Old Testament. This is eating meat that is rare or medium rare. If you like a good medium rare steak, okay. Uh, he's basically saying, hey, you know what? You should probably abstain 
from eating those kinds of foods. And, but he attaches it with that last phrase, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What he's saying is, hey, y'all live in communities where the Jewish law is being proclaimed and being lived out by your Jewish brothers and sisters. Don't flaunt your freedom in front of them. You want to eat a steak? Eat that in the back of your house. Don't go out and eat that in front of them. It's basically what he's, basically what he's saying, okay? The point what James is saying here again. He agrees with Peter. We need to keep the message of salvation pure by doing what? Relying on the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And if you're somebody who relies on the grace of Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then, as a new believer, the Gentiles need to resist idolatry, sexual sin, and then I would summarize it this way, they need to be sensitive to the fact that there are new Jewish believers coming to the faith in Christ in every city who will now continue to observe those traditions of ethical holiness or moral holiness. There's no need for the Gentiles to flaunt their freedom in ways that are either sinful or relationally destructive. But again, overriding principle I think in this whole section, we need to fight to keep the message of salvation pure by relying solely on the grace of Jesus Christ alone. And I think the thing about relying on the grace of Jesus Christ alone is it has, it has to affect more than just our thoughts. Like, conceptually, you might hear the words coming out of my mouth and go, I agree with those, or I disagree with some of those, and that's fine too, right? It has to affect more than just our thoughts. That's why the imagery, because images and painting pictures, I'm a picture book guy, I guess. <laughs> images and pictures affect our minds to an extent that it, it, it then gets down and affects our emotions, which attaches more to our desires. So it has to affect more than just the thinking. It has to affect the heart, the desires, and the emotions that are running throughout, through us, the way that God designed us, right? So that's why the image of the big white sheet with a projector. It's okay sometimes for us just to start listening out all of those sins and start thinking about how destructive and despicable and horrible and gross, disgusting they are. So that we might then, from that white sheet, cast over the top of it a picture of a bloody, broken Savior who was perfect. He did carry this law perfectly. He did what you and I can't do. And then he didn't just go, hey, Yo, this is what you should have done. This is what you should be doing. You see, I did it. I'm your example. I'm your model, so go do it. And then he walks away. That's not what he did. Although in some regard, he did say, hey, listen to my words and be obedient. I think tongue-in-cheek, knowing there's no way you could obey every word of Jesus. There's no way you could. Just like when he takes the woman who's going to get rocks thrown at her, Right? Draws a line in the sand, writes something down, tells the men, got, got no sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. Jesus is the only man that could actually do that, right? Because he has no sin. Those guys are like, okay, we're out. Yeah, yeah, we're full of sin. And then what does he do? He looks down and he goes, hey, where's your accusers at? The reality is the only one that could really accuse her is him. He does not accuse her, but what does he, do? what does he say? Go and sin no more. It's a really profound statement to me. As you know darn well, she walked away from there and was completely unable to go and sin no more. That's a conundrum at that point, isn't it? Not unless you start thinking about the grace of Jesus Christ. Because he'll say those things so that you understand what I just said to you is actually law. And I'm saying it so that it would lead you to the gospel. The good news that it is by grace that you are saved. Grace literally means undeserved unearned merit undeserved unearned favor didn't earn it it's given to you so something of this magnitude i think is worth writing down right which is exactly what they do third thing we notice in the text early church writes its first doctrinal statement i i think verses 22 through 29 in those verses, the church basically writes its first doctrinal statement, and it's regarding salvation. Key and core doctrinal position to protect. 
And they write this doctrinal statement regarding salvation and Christian ethics is also included there at the tail end. Now, you could also say that this might be the second. I say it's the first. It's just, it's, it's the, I think it's the second one outside of what is commonly known as the, the didache or the didache. Um, th- that's, that means the teaching of the apostles. And so in, in Acts 2.42, when you see that they were devoted to the, to the apostles' teaching, the word there in the Greek is didache or didache or didache or whatever. I can't speak Greek anyways. No, that's the way the word is spelled. Um, that was then kind of moved forward over the years in its writing, and, and some believe it became kind of a generic version of the Apostles' Creed. Okay? And then different churches began to adopt their own creeds over the course of history that always loosely tied to the Apostles' Creed. So that's the didache. So yes, that's a doctrinal statement for sure, just like our statement of faith that we have on our website, that if you become a member here, you, you want to sign on to that and go, I agree with this. Um, so I think there is that. But there's this statement that they're writing, and this one's like the first one the church just gets together and writes it. And in this statement, it's written in the form of a letter to the Gentile church in Antioch, right? Uh, this is the church in Jerusalem making it clear in writing that while a believer is definitely saved by grace, Christians do have a responsibility to resist idolatry, to resist sexual impurity while also remaining sensitive to those secondary issues that can arise among legitimate brothers and sisters in faith. So there's a few things that I think stand out in this letter as we work our way through it. Um, First, um, they absolutely resist the urge to demonize the circumcision party. That's worth noting. They do extend a lot of grace. Uh, They do acknowledge that this group of people actually troubled the Gentile believers, right? Verse 24, they say that they they troubled them and they unsettled their minds, although we gave them no instructions. So, again, they, they, they don't demonize them, this circumcision party. They don't demonize their position in the argument. But they do speak truthfully about what they did. And they also speak truthfully about the results of that behavior, and they also clarify that they had no part in it. They, they distanced themselves from that. Hey, we, we didn't send them. We want you to know that. Second thing I notice is that the church clarifies that they are united in the judgment that they're about to communicate regarding the process of salvation. Okay? They're united in that. All of them are together. Unity is a big deal, especially when it comes to core statements of faith regarding things like salvation, the nature and character of God, and so on and so forth. So they're united. They also choose some upstanding men. They say uh, in in verses 25 through 27, they, they choose some upstanding men. And they use this phrase, these men have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they send them with Paul and Barnabas and the letter. Now, I can think of no better messengers to send than those who were willing to lay it all on the line for the name of Jesus Christ, right? Anybody with lesser credentials, I think, would kind of feel like a punch to the gut, right? I'm not sure if I could trust this person or not. Third thing I notice uh, in this letter um, is that in verses 20 through 29, it's basically a near carbon copy of what James said in the council. This, This to me is an indicator of something. It's an indicator of how influential James was among the early church. Um, I think the dude was kind of like a rock star. Okay. Um, but he, he was a very well-respected, holy man who carried his rock star status well. Um, I oftentimes feel like I have a lot to learn from James in this. So I think he was a man who had a unique gift, too. He was able to sift through all of the rubble of the conflict while also holding fast to the purity of the message of salvation in light of God's word. And then as he sifted through that, and he was able to grab a hold of some of the main pieces, I think he was also able to hold on to the main principle of the gospel. And he could do that in the face of severe opposition. To me, as I observe James doing what he does here, He seems to be a man of intense courage in the face of great opposition. I also think a few other things. I also think that that James had a unique understanding of his opponents. 
I, I think the Spirit gave him this ability for sure. Oftentimes we don't do so well when we know we have opponents, right? We just lash out. I do. I have to apologize and ask forgiveness. I think he understood that at the heart of their argument was a fear of a perceived lack of integrity. I think the Pharisees could not fathom the murky gray waters of Gentiles coming into relationship without the law of Moses, playing a part in the process, as had been their experience. I think that they really did struggle with understanding that a relationship with God had always been based upon the grace and mercy of God. You go back through Jewish history, it's all over. I think it just was easy to miss. There are some today who would like to say that God's grace did not really get poured out until the cross. No, not true. It got poured out in a very fulfilling way. It's always there. God's grace and mercy was always there. Simple statement. Otherwise, he would have wiped the Jewish nation off the face of the planet for their rebellion. Right? So I think that the circumcision party had a hard time understanding. And I think that James had a unique way of understanding what was going on in their minds. To them, to the Gentiles, um, or to them, the Jewish believers, these, these circumcision parties, the Gentiles were not coming into relationship with God along the same pathway as they had. And so they were concerned about the integrity of the entire enterprise becoming known as the church. I'll tell you, as many times as I study through the book of Acts, and I just go back and I look at the church that God starts, and I go, you know, it looks nothing close to what we've turned the church into today. It's not always bad. I've learned to be a little less a warrior-like when it comes to trying to be biblical about the church. But in many ways, it's really fascinating. The more that you study this, the way the church looked, the characters that were there, the way it was built, the opposition that was present, the way God was just so faithful. Again, I think James understands um, the circumcision party. He understands their stance, but ultimately he knows that he can't lead the church to endorse their stance. Because if he did, it would add something to the grace of God in salvation. And that, adding something to the grace of God in salvation, would inevitably make the message of salvation null and void. Because it would be based upon man's working to gain God's grace, an oxymoron if ever there was one, right? So at the end of the day, James, a letter to the church, adopts on behalf of the new Gentile believers. They make it plain and simple. You're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. You can keep that message of salvation pure. And I think that, I think, is definitely heavily implied that we actually dirty our testimony when we give in to sin. So there is an ethical responsibility and a moral responsibility for believers to walk in a way that adorns the gospel. The Gentiles, the message says, are to keep that message pure by resisting idolatry, resisting sexual immorality, being sensitive to secondary issues among brothers and sisters. Now, the only question left is how are the Gentile believers going to receive this letter? Okay. How are they going to respond to what the church in Jerusalem has decided? And that's the final portion of the text, right? Doctrinal statement gets delivered in verses 30 through 35. Paul and Barnabas, their band of brothers, they deliver this doctrinal statement from Jerusalem. They continue to teach and exhort these new believers. The Gentile believers rejoice in the simplicity of the message they receive. I love that. They rejoice in it. How many times have you sat across from someone and said, hey, yo, you're walking in sin. You really ought to resist that and start walking this way. And how many times have you had that person go, who are you to judge me? Right? Or they just get mad. Or, or the one that is always freaky to me is that they find some way of being like, well, I know we disagree but we're going to continue doing this. And we love you. It's like, oh, that feels really mushy, right? Have you ever had that? Man. So here, they actually rejoice. 
It says that when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, it might seem weird to you to think that a short list of ethical requirements for a believer would be encouraging, but I don't want you to forget. I don't want you to forget that these new Gentile believers, what were they waiting to hear about? They're waiting to hear about a decision that's getting made, right? And the decision that's getting made is whether or not they would be required to be circumcised as adults and whether they would be required to observe the entire Mosaic law. So this short list of ethical standards for believers would have been really encouraging in light of the dismal possibility of that adult circumcision and that heavy weight of the Mosaic law. Not to mention the affirmation that, hey, you are saved by grace alone and we believe you're saved. Here's the way you ought to live now. Bottom line here is the Gentiles do what we often forget to do. Here's what we often forget to do. They do it. They rejoice in the simplicity of the message of the gospel. Just rejoice in it, you know? Isn't that great? A few things of application. Running late. I think it's important for us to think about how it all applies to us, right? Keep in mind, the book of Acts unfolds like a continuous war zone. God's advancing his kingdom through the message of the gospel. Remember that our enemy is crouching around the corner, right? He's ready to oppose God every turn. But also remember that, that our enemy cannot outsmart God. He might outsmart you and I, most likely because he's smarter than you and I. He's been around a lot longer, doing things a lot longer. Probably knows the scriptures better than you and I. If you didn't think about that once, you should think about that now. Probably knows the scriptures better than you and I. Okay. He's out there, our enemy. And he's well-equipped. Our job as believers is to fight to keep the gospel pure. I think that's the center of the text. It's the center of it. How do we do that? Here's some things that I think are very implied by the text. Number one, resist the urge to add anything to the process of salvation. Let me say it again. Resist the urge to add anything to the process of salvation. Salvation is a gift of God that comes by grace through faith and not by any man's works. Why? So that none of us can boast in ourselves. But so that we can all instead boast in Christ and Christ alone. You think about this. There was a preacher who made this phrase and then wrote a book by the same title, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Interesting thing was that this guy was trying to push back so hard on the law that he actually wound up having multiple affairs as a preacher and still claims to be a faithful preacher. Doesn't change the fact that what he said is true. But you can also say that out to his logical conclusion and you can't abuse it. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. I would even submit that if any of us are in this room are struggling in, in our relationships with God, it's probably because you've lost sight of what it means to be saved by grace. And therefore, I think in the midst of that, you've lost your awe. You've lost reverence for God. You're basically bored with God. And the reason why is, is because you've begun to focus, instead of focusing on God's grace in saving you, you've begun to focus on what you need to do, what you should be doing, or what God may require you to do now that you are saved. And that's, that is indication of performance-based religion. You're more focused on that. And I just want to encourage you, maybe take a step back and look at that sheet and place the cross over the top and keep that in front of you so that you might experience outside of your head and down into your heart, what grace is. Secondly, uh, secondly, rely on the grace of Jesus Christ for a salvation-based relationship with God. There's a lot of words. Rely on the grace of Jesus Christ for a salvation-based relationship with God. A graceless relationship with God becomes a heavy burden to bear. Uh, so let me suggest again, if this is you, I might want to try coming to God with nothing but your sin in your hands instead of your performance, or instead of your perceived performance. Just come to him with just your sin, nothing else. Because really, as some of the reformers said, that's really all I have when I come to Jesus anyways is my sin. And then he gives me his righteousness. That's grace, pure grace. Come to God with nothing but your sin in your hands so that our God our good Father can shower you with his grace once again, and you could be set free from those shackles, set free from those heavy weights that the gangster put on your feet, 
set free from what we call in one quick word, it's called legalism. Set free from that and enabled to enjoy God as a good father once again. Third, resist idolatry, resist sexual impurity, be sensitive to secondary issues. Very briefly, very quickly, here's the deal. Idolatry and sexual immorality, both cancerous. Cancerous infections. Every one of us in this room has struggled in this area at one level or another. If you tell me you haven't, I say you're a liar. And God might prove me different when we get to heaven, but I just, idolatry and sexual impurity. Resist those. They're cancerous infections. They creep into our lives deceptively. They quickly develop strong roots if they're not rooted out constantly. And idolatry can range from anything from vocation to relationships to ministry to finances to family to victimhood. This day and age, victimhood is one of the biggest pieces of idolatry I see. The list can go on and on. Okay, you name it. We turn all sorts of good things that God gave us into ultimate things and we twist God's word to make up our own rules so that we can cling tightly to those idols that we love. And it might be that we love to control things, or it might be that we love to feel comfortable in things, or want to feel safe, or want to feel accepted. We hold on to those idols for those reasons. Sexual sin, pervasive, constantly knocking on your door. The media that you consume, the scantily clad people we encounter in our community, it's always there. If you're not careful, you quickly begin to lead a double life. Secret sexual sin, that you're feeding rather than starving. Got to start starving it. And the only way you do that is by clinging to the grace of Jesus and by being in the Father's presence. If you're not in the Father's presence, you're going to give in to these things. The last piece is the sensitivity to secondary issues. Now, the thing that I've observed in us as people is that we love to argue secondary issues. You know why? Because they're fun. And if I can beat you at it, I feel good. I feel like I've been proclaiming the gospel, right? Um, we do that while, while, while ignoring the first two. That's what I think we have a bent towards uh, as believers. I'm not saying our church, it's not an indictment against us as a church. It's an indictment against Christians as a whole. I just think humanity is good at this. We're often guilty of idolatry, right? We're being in a relationship with another man-made small g God, such as vocation, family, hobbies, money, at the expense of a vibrant relationship with a living God. We like dead idols rather than a living God. It's fascinating. At the same time, we're often guilty of sexual immorality, even at the mere thought level, like the Pharisees who wanted to throw stones at a prostitute. Even at the mere thought level. And sexual immorality doesn't mean you have to look at porn. It could just mean that you read a sexy novel. Or it could just mean that you watch a soap opera. And as you're watching it, you start to fantasize about that relationship you're observing on the screen. You understand what I'm saying? It is so pervasive in our culture. So you got those two kinds of sins, idolatry, sexual immorality, and we like to ignore those things while investing untold amounts of time on our pet peeve secondary issues. And I think that if we all focused on true repentance as a journey from the first two, idolatry and sexual immorality, then here's the thing. I think it'd be easier for us to extend grace on secondary issues among brothers and sisters in Christ. Briefly, maybe another minute longer here and I'm almost done. Fourth piece for us for application, rejoice in the simple message of salvation. That was the end of the text, wasn't it? Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. This final principle is the one that I think is like the nail in the coffin. It might be a bad illustration, but it's like the nail in the coffin. It's the one that seals it all up, right? When we cease to rejoice in the simplicity of the message of salvation... We fall into distant relationship with God, which then affects our horizontal relationships with others. And that ultimately leads to us expecting from other people what only God can satisfy. It might be good for some of us to begin praying for the Lord to restore to us the joy of our salvation and then rely on His grace to restore that joy. Amen? We pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, God, as we close, that you would um, help us to turn the attention of our hearts to you and to the shed blood, broken body of your son, Jesus, at the cross. Help us uh, to repent 
ways that we have cheapened and twisted the gospel. Also, Father, encourage us and strengthen us so that we might continue to grow in uh, fighting for the purity of the gospel. First, in our own lives and our hearts. Help us to repent of sin. Help us to see that big sheet. Help us to see that bloody cross together. And help us to celebrate and to rejoice and find joy that you, a good father, would give your one and only son for us. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it. We actually earned and deserved your wrath because you loved us, because your grace abounded so much more than our sin. You sent Jesus. Help us to find ourselves there. In Jesus' name, amen.